Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Photo Radar returns to the hammer. Also, the U.S. presidential debate. Do you still feel dirty? Should the rules be changed? Or does that matter if you don't even follow them? And conservative leader Aaron O'Toole spoke for the first time in the House yesterday. What did he have to say? It's all coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Sorry I missed yesterday. School and a broken leg got in the way. After hearing my sister, I feel like my job here is secure. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. There's the brotherly love. There's a... There's your sibling love right there. Uh, there's a bus coming here. Under you go. Uh, good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Uh, Will Erskine back at the station keeping the Scott Thompson home show on the air. Uh, week number 29. Uh, let's talk about something local and something that isn't related to COVID-19. Starting today in some areas, photo radar is going to be set up in Hamilton. Remember that? Remember photo radar? I remember when this came in the first time and uh, it lasted for a while and then people got a little uh, cranky about it and then it was gone. But that was back in a day when nobody wanted anybody watching them. Now everything you do, people are watching you. Everybody's got a camera in their pocket. So uh, it's interesting how times have changed and how our attitude and all of this has changed. Let's bring in Mike Field, Manager of Transportation Operations for the City of Hamilton and is with us now. Mike, thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Very good. How are you? I'm doing well. So let's start with that. How do you explain the different attitude about photo radar now, you know, compared to what it was years ago? I I think it's a different age, like you pointed out, that uh, you know everyone's used to uh, to to having cameras on the street. But uh, you know the the whole aspects of how we make our roadways safer, I think, has changed uh, since the original round of photo radar and. And the whole purpose of, of the the new cameras is really to uh, help improve improve roadway safety, um, and we're going to do that by reducing speeding and changing driver behaviors, um, and increasing the public's awareness about how important it is to slow down when they're traveling through school zones and community safety zones where these cameras exist. Success of red light cameras contributing to this. I think red light cameras are are another tool that we use to improve uh, the safety performance of roadways, and and, uh, they are very similar uh, in terms of of what the goal is here. So, um, and, and, you know, we do have uh, that experience of operating those cameras and having the success uh, of of those cameras in the city and reducing, you know, the number of collisions that occur at intersections where they are. So I think we do leverage... Um, you know, the, the experience from those uh, red light cameras and, and uh, be able to, um, you know, use those experiences basically with uh, these new cameras. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm old enough to remember when this came around the first time and a lot of people were upset. I think it was about two issues. Number one, you weren't necessarily getting the person who was driving the car, although I'm not sure there's that many people lending their cars out to strangers nowadays or back then. And the other one was with the, was that it was a money grab, that, that, that it wasn't about results. But you've seen proof of those results through the, the red camera, or sorry, the red light camera operation. Yeah, absolutely. The, the 
the process is the same when the camera takes a picture. It's taking a picture of the license plate and it, the ticket's being sent to uh, the registered owner of the car. So you're correct in that it's not identifying necessarily the driver of the car, but but the vehicle itself. And most definitely, um, we have seen, uh, you know, the proof that red light cameras work. And in other jurisdictions that use uh, automated speed enforcement, um, it has also been a proven technology to improve um, the roadway safety where they are active. How many other jurisdictions are, are using these? Because, again, the technology's been there for a long time. In Ontario, they subsided. But what about other jurisdictions? Yeah, the, the province uh, um, allowed uh, the use of uh, automated speed enforcement uh, in 2007. And there's many municipalities that are kind of participating uh, with these cameras now, the largest one being the City of Toronto, and then some other municipalities are, are just kind of uh, um, joining in on, on that effort as well. But uh, I know in, in other countries, um, they use uh, uh, automated speed enforcement quite regularly and have, for, have, have been for quite some time. So tell us about the cameras themselves. Are these mobile? Can they be moved around? Yeah, they, they, uh, if, if you see them or when you see them, they kind of look like uh, large mailboxes and they're gray and they're portable. The reason why they're portable uh, in Hamilton is that we're doing a 12-month pilot project and we have two cameras and we're going to be rotating them across 12 different locations uh, on a monthly basis. There are uh, permanent style of cameras that are up on a pole, but these ones uh, that we're using are, are uh, uh, considered um you know, ones that we can move around. What about vandalism? Because they are on the ground. Yeah, we did experience some vandalism of them. Someone spray-painted the uh, the lenses and the flash the other day, but uh, we were prepared for that. The City of Toronto uh, were, I think, the first municipality to use ASE or automated speed enforcement equipment. So we kind of looked at what was happening in Toronto, and then, uh, you know, we expect that there may be some vandalism at times, so we're ready to, to clean uh, the lenses and, and the cameras when we need to. So we monitor them on a regular basis um, to make sure that they're functioning the way that they need to function. And if there's any issues with them, we're attending to those um, quickly. So in the instance of them being spray painted, we, we uh, clean them the same day. So this is a pilot project of one year uh, and it starts today. Tell us about the project. How is What's the objective here? And you talked about rotating the cameras. What, what does the next year entail? Yeah, that's a good question. The The pilot project's really uh, uh, based on some direction that we received from council um, in that uh, we're going to test these out for a, a period of, of a year and we're going to rotate these two cameras across 12 different locations and, and uh, within that are kind of uh, different types of roads and, and, you know, different areas of the city. And uh, upon the conclusion of that pilot project, we're going to compile the lessons learned and the information and, and present that to uh, to council to make a decision whether or not this is a technology that we want to use permanently in the city or otherwise. And how do you decide what locations? Uh, yeah, that's another great question. We we um, The province created a criteria for selecting the location, so we, we use that criteria. Um, it's based on uh, looking at a number of different different things, but most most uh, importantly, kind of the past roadway safety performance of roadways. So we want to make sure that where we're putting these cameras, that we're going to get the most benefit um, from them to make sure that, uh, you know, we're, we're using these things and leveraging the power that they have to make our roads safe, 
safer. So all the locations that we choose, we push through that uh, selection criteria. We actually looked at 75 locations across the city to come up with the 12, and we chose the 12 that, uh, like I said, um, match the criteria the best and would have the, the most benefit for having these cameras installed. So I understand that these are designed for uh, and approved for roads that are under 80K, uh, not 80K and under, but under 80K, so this will keep them off of certain highways, I guess. Um, is that accurate? It's under 80K? Yeah, there's, there's a couple factors. The cameras can only be installed, and this is uh, the, the rules the province set, uh, on roadways that are 80 kilometers or less than 80 kilometers, sorry, and uh, are in designated either school zones or community safety zones. So outside of those parameters, we're not permitted to install these cameras. So um, as opposed to local or normal speed areas, uh, that's one thing, but these are specifically designed for school safety zones and other safety areas. That's right, yeah. And we have designated school zones uh, across the city, um, and obviously those are areas that we want to protect vulnerable road users, but we also have uh, a new uh, type of uh, safety designation called community safety zones. Um, and those are areas of the city where uh, safety, roadway safety is of uh, special concern. So, and, and, and uh, the road, the name of community safety zone is a little bit deceiving um, uh, because it may not necessarily look like a community. Uh, for instance, the first location is on Stone Church Road East, which uh, some people may look at that and say, hey, that's not a, that's not a community. But um, that's an area where, you know, past uh, roadway safety kind of statistics have shown us that there's a speeding issue and there's, uh, you know, uh, you know, a, a, an issue related to, um, you know, collisions and, and those sorts of things along there. So uh, where we're designating community safety zones across the city, we can also uh, leverage that and install these cameras. Uh, a listener wants to know, what about wiggle room? Like, for example, if the if the speed limit is 60K, is it set for 60? Is it set for 62? Is it set for 65? I know that's probably information you can't give out, but is there wiggle room there? We've been asked that question quite often, and I, I think it's important to just note that uh, speed limits are not guidelines. Uh, there's <laughs> a law. So, um, you know, it's a reminder that we all need to slow down and follow the rules of the road. Yeah, I, I don't think uh, people are going to, you know, if, if somebody of official status like yourself says, well, yeah, they're set about 5K more than, you know, what you're going to get. Everybody's just going to start doing that. And then when in court, they will they will quote you. Uh, what about um, what about the ticket itself? So this ticket's the vehicle and the owner. It doesn't necessarily mean demerit points, correct? That's right. Yeah, because it's only taking a picture of the license uh, plate of the car and not actually, uh, you know, it doesn't know who's driving the car. Uh, demerit points aren't applied, and that's the same same process as uh, what we're used to with red light cameras. And so how many locations are there that you're going to be rotating them around over the course of the year? Will that change? There's 12 locations that we have approved uh, through City Council that, like I mentioned, went through that uh, uh, assessment criteria. And um, I think that they're going to remain static uh, at, for the time being, um, Unless we uh, unless we have some reason why we want to change them by either adding some more or taking them away, but uh, right now it's going to stay uh, with the list that we already have uh, have constructed. What has been the public response so far, Mike? Uh, what are those frequently asked questions? 
I, I think it's very early, right? The cameras were turned on today, um, and we're getting some questions from the public. I think the uh, the speed threshold uh, of when the cameras will activate is a very common one that uh, we uh, we hear. I've seen some criticism uh, on social media about uh, you know the cameras being a cash grab, but. Uh, um, they're absolutely not. It's all about, uh, you know, improving the safety of our roadways. Um, and then I'm seeing a lot of comments about, uh, you know, people acknowledging that uh, uh, controlling speeds and protecting those that need to be protected on the roadways is important to them. So it's a, it's a big uh, big spread of, uh, of, of questions and comments that we're spe- receiving. But I'm sure once people start receiving those tickets in the mail that uh, we're going to get more questions at that point in time. Right. And so what about cost? I mean, this is a pilot project for the city. If they eventually want to purchase these sorts of things uh, or a couple of these, uh, any idea what you've got, uh, how many of these uh, pictures have to be taken before, you know, the the equipment is paid for and and, uh, your costs are covered? Yeah, the the that's part of the pilot project is to examine um, you know, the tickets that we are receiving, how much it costs to run them and how much efforts um, needed to maintain them and operate them. Uh, so that's, that's a bit of an unknown, and that's an output of the, the pilot project and the benefit of conducting a pilot project. Um, unlike uh, red light cameras, which have a set fine, obviously these things don't because it's all determined on uh, what speed the, the motors is going above the speed limit. Um, that will determine the fine and uh, there's some fixed costs for us that, um, uh, you know, for, for processing the tickets and sending them out and that sort of thing. Um, and we have to, uh, to, to, to bridge those costs to cover them. I think uh, the way we're looking at it and, and when we report it to council initially is that we don't see this as a, a necessarily a revenue generator for us. In fact, we, we're kind of looking at it right now as possibly, um, uh, you know, being a, a a costly endeavor for us, but uh, you know the the benefit of it is improvement to the roadway safety network. And I think over time, uh, if these things do what we want them to do, it'll change drivers' behavior, and uh, the number of tickets issued will will drop over time. Um, and we see that with red light cameras as well. When they're first installed, there's you know the compliance to it is is you know as it's um, you know a negative peak where there's a lot of people possibly driving through them, and as um, those cameras are known to be there, then, then compliance improves. So I have some expectation the same thing's going to happen with uh, these locations. Are you concerned at all about uh, legal issues around this? But I'm sure that's all been done. Uh, all those uh, I's have been dotted and T's crossed. Yeah, from a municipal perspective, we just have to make sure that we have met the rules and regulations that the province has set out for us as far as the signing, signing requirements and, and how they operate. As far as um, you know, contesting tickets or that sort of thing, that all happens uh, within the court system, and we, as the municipality, don't really get involved with that. We just have to make sure that um, when we're installing these and, and uh, uh, operating them, that we're we're following those rules, so that if someone is challenging the ticket, that uh, all those things are in place, that uh, we've done our part, and and have them set up so that um, um, you know we're 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 in line with. Uh, those requirements all right starting today in some areas uh, some areas of the city photo radar returns to hamilton in uh, safety zones and school zones mike field manager of transportation operations for the city has been with us mike thanks for the time good luck with this 
No problem. I just want to add if uh, anyone else would like some more information about uh, automated speed enforcement in the city of Hamilton, we've set up a web page and they can find it at hamilton.ca slash automated speed enforcement. All right, there you go, Mike. Thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right, let's head south of the border. Uh, People still uh, feeling awful dirty after watching the presidential debate the other night. Oh, my goodness. It's, you know, a lot of people are just like that. You just don't know what to say. You're just dumbfounded by the whole thing. And now they're talking about changing the rules because there's still another two more to do. Uh, I believe the vice presidential debate is a week from Wednesday, but then there's, uh, I believe, two more presidential debates after that. They're talking about changing the rules. It's the same group that runs all of these. I don't know if it's a case of changing the rules if the people don't uh, abide by the rules. There's no sense in changing them. It's it's not a case of are the rules adequate. It's are people following them and are they being enforced? Uh, let's play a uh, clip of uh, Donald Trump. This is him talking afterwards about debate night. In the history of cable television, had the highest ratings of any show in the history of cable television. And it had the second highest ratings of overall television in the history of television. All right. Um, I guess that's what we're aiming for here. Big ratings on debate night. Aaron Collis with us, director of, the, uh, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald. He is with us now. Aaron, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, it's great to be back with you. So, again, uh, your thoughts, uh, b- before we get into this in a little bit more depth, your thoughts of, of, of what you saw as you were watching the other night. At what point did you realize, oh, my goodness, this is going to get ugly? I think about a, a, minute or two, a minute or two into the debate, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. I mean, we thought that it would be you know, an aggressive, in-the-mud kind of fight because President Trump is behind in both the national polls and the the swing state polls, and so he had to do something like this, kind of throw the kitchen sink at Joe Biden and hope something stuck and do something to change the narrative of the race that he's been losing now for you know, over a year. Uh, but I, I, I think we thought it'd be, it'd be isolated and compartmentalized and maybe you'd have a, a few skirmishes that broke out, but didn't expect that it would be it would go on for the entire 90-minute duration of the debate. There'd be no let-up and so much talking over each other and interruptions. And so it was very unfortunate. I mean, the stakes are very great in the United States. We're just like everyone else dealing with coronavirus, a decreased economy, uh, racial tensions and other things. Uh, there hadn't been a presidential debate in almost four years. And so there's a lot of anticipation coming into it. The topics that were being discussed were advan- were announced in advance by the moderator. And certainly the, the debate didn't live up to you know the high expectations and the importance uh, that so many people viewed it to have. Aaron, obviously you're an expert in debating. Uh, rules are rules. Is it that this debate structure, these rules need to be changed? Or does that matter what rules you set up if nobody abides by them? Yeah, I, I agree. I don't think, well, first, I, I don't think, you know, changing the rules in the middle of a debate cycle, I think it's difficult. I mean, a lot, as you mentioned, the Commission on Presidential Debates has been handling these since 1988. And before the debate, the first debate started, both campaigns had to agree to, you know, time limits and, you know, other norms and things. And and so to try after the first debate that, you know, didn't go very well for President Trump to then try to say you're going to change the rules just 
it just doesn't look good in general um, because you're already underway and, and people had agreed to things in advance. But, yeah, I mean, there's no penalty other than, you know, people don't like the debate and they don't think a particular candidate did well. They won't vote for them. I mean, that's the ultimate penalty. But in real time, there's nothing that a moderator can really do. I mean, first of all, you have a, a big power imbalance where, you know, Chris Wallace works at Fox News, but the president, the president of the United States, and people are deferential to him and, you know, there's a reverence of the position and the office, and you can't, you know, just force the president to do anything. We see him flout a lot of other norms, uh, much more significant than this. I know they've talked about turning off microphones, giving the, the moderator the ability to do that. They tried to do that in 1980 in the Republican primary debate, and Ronald Reagan, you know, used that as a big talking point that, you know, he had paid for the microphone and how dare the the debate tried to take away his microphone, and that caused him to only increase in popularity, and he won the debate. He ended up being the Republican nominee and obviously was president for eight years. So so there's no foolproof plan. I think at this late stage in the game, there's uh, unlikely to be an agreement by both sides to change any significant rule. And so ultimately, uh, the verdict is, you know, just we'll have these debates, hopefully, they go for 90 minutes, and um, they could be free-for-alls, but then the that people have to speak for themselves uh, and and vote and you know, kind of determine their displeasure of, of what happened. And we already saw the ratings for the first debate. They're significantly down to 2016 uh, by about 10 million or so. And so just already the style has turned people off unless people are going to watch these anyway. What about the clip we played where Donald Trump said these are the biggest ever? <laughs> I think he was talking about his, his show, The Apprentice, but... But no, the first debate in New York in 2016 had 84 million tune in. This time it was uh, closer to 74 million. And so I think they said it was down about 16%. So um, he's certainly, um, you know, plays fast and loose with the facts sometimes. And so if, if that was the statement about these past ratings for the debate, then no, it's definitely not the case. And I would expect future ratings to also be down just because some people, after what they saw, are likely very put off, and uh, we'll find other things to watch, sporting events and, and other things. It'll be it would be fascinating to know to know how many were there when it first started, and by 15 minutes, how many had already bailed. Yes, that would be. We didn't get that data yesterday. I don't know if uh, as we get a little further outside, but but I agree. I think because it'd be really just um, such high expectations met with such low follow through and performance. I mean, we hadn't had a presidential debate for so long, and uh, the last ones were very well viewed, two of the three most watched debates of all time, given the stakes of the election. Um, these, obviously, two men are very well known, have been in public life for a long time, people have very strong opinions, and immediately <laughs> it was clear that the debate was going to be off the rails. I mean, the first topic was the Supreme Court, and that was supposed to last the discussion for about 15 minutes, and maybe they talked about the court for a total of a few minutes only, and so... Just a lot of times the discussion veered off into tangential subjects and the initial things that were supposed to be discussed didn't even get the attention they deserved. Aaron Call is with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan, co-author of Debating the Donald. Uh, Aaron, uh, what do you do when, you know, if you're a debating coach and, you know, you've set something like this up and the opponent, you're supposed to speak for two minutes each with no interruptions and then debate for two minutes. What do you do when the person doesn't let you talk for two minutes, when the person keeps interrupting, which, you know, and then, you know, unfortunately, uh, you know, Biden responded, which just elevated the whole thing. But, but, but what do you do when someone's interrupting and taking your time? 
Yeah, I mean, you have limited limited options. I mean, in general, you know, if you're in an academic debate, um, you know, there's a judge who's determining who's going to win the debate between two people or four people or however many people participate in the debate. And if you constantly get interrupted and, you know, it's just not an equal debate where your opponent has X amount of speaking time and you have much less, then you would kind of try to appeal to the judge that, you know, uh, you must consider this in your decision because we're not giving a fair amount of speaking time and, you know, the rules are not fair for both sides. And so there's no way to determine, you know, a true winner of the debate. But in something like this where the audience is not physically there, uh, they're mostly watching on television or some kind of other platform. I mean, you could... You know, a few options, obviously, appealed to support from the moderator. And the moderator, you know, did, I mean, the fact that the debate concluded, I think, was, was positive. But uh, in real time, Chris Wallace did say that President Trump was doing the majority of the interruptions, making that clear to the public and to count that against him. And I think they did some data after the debate that showed that President Trump was responsible for about three-fourths of the interruptions. You can just, you know, allow the interruptions, but then you kind of look weak and your opponent is going to dominate all the speaking time. You can try to play, you know, interrupt your opponent and escalate the situation. But at that time, you know, you basically both are just interrupting. And if people are talking over each other, the audience doesn't even hear what the arguments are. And so in some ways, uh, you know, at least that doesn't give your opponent an advantage. But, but yes, if, if, if someone's not abiding by the rules that were agreed to upon, then, then yes, there's not going to be uh, a fair debate. It's not going to uh, give people the information that they need to vote. And so it's just unfortunate. I'm hoping, even with no rule change, the next debate is a town hall debate where undecided voters are there and they ask questions directly. And I just think it'd be much less likely, especially for President Trump, to interrupt um, while an undecided voter is asking questions. So at least the next debate, the format sets up better to to dissuade and discourage interruptions. But we were a little bit surprised in the first debate, so there's really no way to know about how it's going to evolve. When the president uh, kept interrupting uh, the vice president's two minutes, should Biden have just stopped and stopped and, and not even acknowledged the president, just stopped and looked right at the monitor and or the moderator and said, uh, you know, he's interrupting me. Can I can I get my two minutes back? Like, are you going to control this or rather than engage? Should he just push should have pushed it all onto the moderator and said, this is my two minutes. You got to get a hold of it. You got to get a control of this guy. That's not my job. That's your job. Yeah, it's it's tough. You know, then you are obviously that's of, that's a lot difficult to do. But uh, as you know, yeah, Monday, I mean, Monday afternoon quarterback, it's easy to do. But yeah, I mean, you look a little you know weak doing that. I mean, he did. I think Biden did say, I just want to make sure that I'm you know not losing time because of this. and I'm going to get you know additional 30 seconds. So he did try to plead for that a little bit. I mean, the really the real answer is what to do is to anytime you're interrupted to, you know, come back quickly with you know, a fact in the other direction or whatever the interruption is, right. uh, correct it. Or, but the problem is, you know, Joe Biden, his age is 77. It's clear that he's not quick enough to do that. And so, you know, if, if, um, if the president is saying something about, you know, you're not smart, and then, then you know, Joe Biden come back with saying, well, you're, the only reason you got into to Penn was because, you know, your father gave a donation. So really the answer is when being interrupted, come back with a quick, you know, retort and response in real time immediately, which would probably then get the president to, to stop the interruptions, especially if they're not successful and that he's actually losing those arguments. But it's clear that, that Joe Biden doesn't have the speed to do that and that President Trump is just much more aggressive and quicker. And so that even further limits, uh, you know, the options of what Biden can do. 
What about that line that we've seen being isolated now playing on uh, various news organizations? Would you just shut up, man, when he came back? Does, is, is that good? Is that bad? I remember watching that and thinking, oh, man, just stop it. But yet that seems to be getting all the airplay. I agree. And at the time, it seemed like it was bordering on kind of disrespectful. I mean, you are debating the president. You're on the same stage and you're you know, on equal footing during the debate. And he is a former vice president and senator. Um, but at the same time, just the office of the president generally is, is um, given deference and respect. And so it came really close to the line. In, but at the same time, the, President Trump's kind of lost the moral high ground and to be able to criticize him for that, given all the interruptions and everything else and the attack on his children. So I think it, it, at the time it was unclear how it was going to play, but at least you know a day or two after the debate, it seems like that was effective. I think that his supporters thought that it was him standing up for him. It showed that he could go toe-to-toe to the president. Um, Joe Biden has done excellent in fundraising, both during and after the debate. They're selling T-shirts, I believe, that have already sold out from the campaign that say, shut up, man, on them. Different state uh, uh, Democratic parties are selling them. And so I was a little unsure at the time, and it could always go either way. Uh, But in this instance, that uh, turned out to be a very effective response that got some legs uh, even after the debate. So, uh, again, getting back to the second one, um, many are talking about changing the rules. Obviously, as you mentioned, this is a town hall sort of affair, so there will be people there. Um, and that might neutralize things, but let's be honest, it might not. So why would we not just expect the, the same thing the next time? Yeah, a few reasons. I think first, um, we do have the vice presidential debate, which is Wednesday of next week. And let's just say that that is a totally different debate that is uh, very scholarly and uh, there's no ad hominem attacks. And people really like just love the debate that, um, that people learn more and it informs their opinion for voting. And so a very positive uh, vice presidential debate that occurs in a different format, more of a traditional format about how political debates are going to go, that could increase momentum for you know a better and more civil debate. And then also just the, the fallout from the first debate, I think, is just going to cause the candidates to change their behavior, even without rules. I mean, all the, the polls after the debate showed that people thought Joe Biden won, and some of them by large margins, like CNN poll, 32 percent. There was a CNBC poll that was double digits. The CBS poll was a little closer. Um, the, old, the first poll, national poll that's come out just between Biden and, and Trump nationally after the debate shows Biden increased his lead to 13 percent. And before the debate, it was somewhere closer to like 7, 8 percent. And and just, you know, the outrage from everybody about how terrible the debate was is the worst debate of all time. And, and people, even President Trump's advisors uh, have been very public about their disappointment in his performance. And so he tried something unconventional. I think he wanted to try to get Biden to break down on stage, cry, you know, lose his temper, do something that would maybe reset the narrative of the race. That was a high-risk strategy, but maybe he thought he needed to try it. It failed. Um, the, the reviews were terrible. And now he has two other opportunities to change tactics and maybe go to a more conventional uh, performance than I think everybody would appreciate if that happened. So if you were giving advice to both, what would you say, starting with the president? Yeah, I think the president, um, to certainly... Um, not to, to not constantly interrupt. I think it's okay in major instances and you pick your spots and battles to, to interject. That's fine. You know, that happens in debate. But in a 90-minute debate, that should happen a handful of times only. Um, otherwise, it should be traditional. And he has to do other things like how his first term agenda, you know, the how good the economy was before coronavirus, uh, the tax cuts that he passed, the amount of judges he's confirmed. He has obviously a new Supreme Court uh, nominee. Um, 
the, the money he got to try to decrease illegal immigration, and then also talk about what his agenda is for the second term. Uh, be forward-looking, be more optimistic, kind of be more like Ronald Reagan and not so so dire and, and, and have such a, a dark cloud about where the country is, where the country may go. For Joe Biden, I think um, more of kind of talking directly to the public and to the camera. At certain times, he would you know, look directly in the camera and say that he's fighting for the people and that you know he puts them over everybody else. He did that in a few isolated cases, but a little bit more of that, I think, would be good. Um, he needs to make sure to defend himself, but at the same time, don't be too disrespectful. I think that calling the president a clown, something like that, probably wasn't very helpful. Um, it's just, he needs to pick his battles as well, but I don't have much new advice for uh, Joe Biden because uh, the, the polls thought he won. He's already increased his, his lead in the race, and so overall he did pretty well. Uh, one final thing maybe Joe Biden could do is just, you know, needs to correct uh, correct things in real time at some times, like when yeah. President Trump said that uh, Barack Obama left all these judging uh, positions unfilled. It wasn't that. It was that uh, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell prevented him from, uh, you know, from placing them. And there were several opportunities that at the outdoor rallies, you know, um, the president claimed that only his rallies were only outdoor. Several of them, even post-coronavirus, have been indoor, including in, in Nevada. Uh, Herman Cain, a prominent Republican politician, died after attending uh, a rally from you know, Oklahoma for President Trump. So uh, gross mischaracterizations need to be corrected in real time uh, by Joe Biden instead of just letting them go or him hoping the moderator is going to mention them. So he wasn't great. He certainly room for improvement for both candidates, uh, certainly after that first debate. Is it up to Joe Biden to fact-check Donald Trump? Yes, but, again, to a limited extent. You can't fact-check for the entire 90 minutes because then it'll appear too defensive. Uh, you won't be able to talk about your own agenda and vision and things like that because uh, because President Trump plays so uh, fast and loose with the rules. You spend your entire time fact-checking him. So you can't, everyone, have to you know, make a point to that, but... For key things, key things that you know are really important political issues that fit the kind of narrative you're trying to do. As long as you're really sure of the facts and you're well prepared and you can do it, then you definitely need to step in in a few instances and not let the president get away with with such things. It was clear that, that you know the president was coming out really hot, really aggressive, wanted to really you know um, uh, give a one-two punch to to Biden in a sense and, and try to knock him off his game, knock him off his stride. Uh, many said, you know, good tactic, but way over the top. Um, why did he choose that approach? Why not just speak of his record, as you just suggested? Why, why go? You know, why did we see two granddads duking it out? Why, why was he so aggressive? Is he fearful he's losing ground? Yes. So I think the reason is, despite his record, despite all the positive things you know that he's accomplished and mm-hmm. and touted. Uh, he's still losing. He's losing in the national polls. He's losing in all the important uh, states and some of the states that he won in 2016, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin. They've all trended away. Other states, Arizona, Florida, North Carolina, Ohio even are much closer. And so his agenda is not enough. He's you know, alienated too many voters. Um, he's still, you know, despite the way in which the race is being framed, still behind. And we've had all these major issues, coronavirus, the economy, the Supreme Court, impeachment. Um, all these things have not changed the race at all. Once Joe Biden got in the race, he was uh, the leader, and he's been the leader ever since, and his lead has stayed very consistent. So nothing has, has caused the race to decline. I think he just thought, if I can really you know, talk about Joe Biden's son and, and talk about 
you know, how Joe Biden's not educated and all these things, then Joe Biden has a temper. He's known for it. He's you know blown up at uh, at voters and on radio stations. And and I'm going to get Joe Biden to lose his temper, his cool on this stage while 84 million people are watching. And he's going to look like he doesn't have the mental mental fitness and stamina to be president, given his age and some other gaps he's made. And uh, I think he just kind of thought that if I could do that, that maybe that would be the thing that changed the narrative of the race and would cause him to lead. And again, it's um, it was high risk, high reward. Obviously, the reward didn't happen, but I think it was worth. Um, he thought it was worth trying that because everything else he tried to fail, and this maybe would be the last opportunity. Uh, for he could do something that would really, really cha- change the race. Aaron Call has been with us, director of debate at the University of Michigan and editor, co-author of Debating the Donald, talking about the U.S. presidential debate. Aaron, thank you for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Be well. You too, anytime. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. In the commentary today, is it the elected officials, is it the per- uh, political parties of the day, or is it the system in which they all operate on? within or we asked to operate once they are elected we've had this discussion before with tim powers vice chairman summa strategies managing director of abacus data uh yesterday aaron o'toole in the house uh answering uh to the throne speech which he was absent for because of his uh, covid19 test and uh i guess the first appearance uh for him here's what aaron o'toole had to say yesterday here's a small clip there is no leadership there is no accountability, Madam Speaker. And in this speech from the throne, we saw an absence of leadership at a time Canadians, thousands in line, waking up at three in the morning to line up, are desperate for some leadership. Let's bring in Tim, Vice Chairman Summa Strategies, Tim Powers, Managing Director of Abacus Data. Tim, how are you? I hope you're doing well. I am okay. Yeah, I thought we were caught in a time warp. Didn't we talk about that last week? The whole, exactly. Uh, whose responsibility it was? I'm I'm glad we moved forward a week. I think Scott. I don't know. Have we? The reason that I brought that up and I used that in the commentary yesterday was because of the rapid testing. Again, right. it seems like uh, there, there's 15 other nations or countries that have done this. And I can, I can certainly understand Health Canada. You can't do anything unless it's safe and you've done all the research and, and you've you've crossed all your T's and dotted your I's and such. But how is it that some countries can get this rapid testing done and yet we can't? To me, that was another example of government that's just so big and lethargic, it just can't make decisions. Is that inaccurate? Is that a valid, a valid critique, Tim? Yeah, I think it's valid. And I, listen, I'm living this firsthand. I, I went yesterday out of an abundance of caution because... Uh, somebody in my family network may have been exposed and I went and I got a a COVID test and and by the way it's pretty painless and if you can and you you need one Uh, anyway there was a very helpful uh, nurse who took it said hey you know you might have to wait 10 days for the results and I'm like well what is the point even Um, so and my experience is not unique based on what we're all hearing, but to your, to your commentary, yeah, I mean, Doug Ford was on to something yesterday when he, had, and obviously got set up a little bit, when he said, you know, we've got these new devices, or Canada announced they're going to buy them from Abbott Laboratories, but Health Canada needs to approve them. Now, there's a fine balance, yes, to be struck between approval and going through the normal routines to do that, and, and then there's a crisis. So, I don't know. Will we get any better after this and in improving approving products that people need that aren't crisis motivated? Uh, who knows? 
Again, it just comes back to me to a government that cannot be nimble. And that's great when times are good, but when we're in a crisis, that's, 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 problems, that's problematic. Well, and these machines, just stick on this topic, these machines from Abbott Laboratories, as I have read the coverage since, I mean, it's going to take them a while. It may not be for another month or two months until they're out in the field. Um, it's good that we have them. It's good that they're approved. Jeez, uh, you'd think we'd have a better idea of a distribution system in place now, too, because uh, they're needed now, not in December. They'll probably still be needed in December, but uh, you know, you're, you're materially impacting the lives of people. I wasn't in the group that would have been re- required to uh, to quarantine because I voluntarily chose to do this, and I was able to get a, te- a test done voluntarily. But if I were in another group, and I was mandated by my public health authority to do that. I, you know, I could lose five, six, seven, eight days of work waiting for a result. It's, mm. and that has a pronounced impact on the economy. All right, uh, Aaron O'Toole spoke up yesterday in question period. Delivered his speech in regard his rebuttal, I guess, to the throne speech. Your thought on how he did is: Will he resonate with Canadians? Uh, look, I think he's doing a good job of consistently introducing himself. A lot of what he said yesterday to, to you and I and others who've been watching wasn't new, uh, but uh, it, it is a it's consistent, and that's what. And, and he's being he's leading the charge of his own rebranding. It isn't being done for him by the liberals or or for. Uh, for, uh, for for him by the media. And he I, I think the line I remember from the speech of yesterday, and I think this is one they're trying to set up, is Justin Trudeau's the poster boy and Aaron O'Toole's the handyman. And hmm. you need a handyman now. Uh, I think, again, it's gone okay so far, and I think we're going to hear a lot more of it and see a lot more of it. I think you'll see larger paid advertisement eventually when it's appropriate to do so, beyond what they've done on social media. I think the things to take from that speech, Scott, if you're looking at themes that he's hitting on a recurring basis as he introduces himself, he's really trying to appropriate back uh, a lot of uh, working class voters. Um, You and I have had the debate before about what the middle class is. I think he's not bothering to define it. He's just trying to create a broader swath of who who are working Canadians. I mean, he's talked about unions now on a couple of occasions and how he connects with what they do. He's talked about smaller communities and his rotary experience, albeit that might be a bit too white, but that's his upbringing. He's a white, middle-class male. Um, so he's trying to jump into a lot of areas where uh, he thinks he will have more appeal than Andrew Scheer did and challenge Justin Trudeau's legitimacy with those groups. You spoke of the middle class, Tim. Who do you think will resonate with the middle class more? Well, Trudeau has, obviously, right? He's won two elections, and and by and large, it's because he's connected with suburban middle class voters. Again, I think it's a broad definition, Uh, but but he has. I I, I think the COVID example is a fascinating one, and one that... Uh, provides to O'Toole an immediate credibility, but also one he has to be careful about not overplaying his hand with. So he now can speak to the COVID experience and what people are going through. I guess the Prime Minister can, too, to a certain degree, because his wife, uh, unfortunately, was infected with COVID-19, as we recall, at the beginning of the pandemic. 
but Mr. O'Toole directly, his, his own wife, uh, I think those were the two in the family that lived through it. So, you know, he's talking about that. He's talking about his experience with testing, and that, that gives him a bit of a, a common ground. The risk there, of course, for him is he was able to get some private testing quicker than others were, uh, so he was able to get his diagnoses more quickly. But I think people will forget about that in the end and say, hey, look, this guy is struggling as we are. Or this is what O'Toole wants to have happen as we are through all of this. And we're glad he can speak to us that way. That's what the conservatives want you to think. How does the prime minister have to readjust his election campaign from the first one or the second one? Uh, when we do eventually get to an election campaign. And we've talked about this before. I called it fashionable politics before COVID-19, you know, hitting on the things that uh, that, that are going to resonate with the average uh, privileged person in Ontario. Are we at a different point now? Well, uh, here, here's a word to listen for, uh, and you've heard it a little bit already in, in some gentle liberal pushback on, on O'Toole. They haven't gone too hard on it yet. It's austerity. So what the liberals are going to want to do with Aaron O'Toole and the conservatives this time is to say, hey, you know, we've had your back, as Trudeau often likes to say, and we've been spending money and we got the emergency benefits through for you, and albeit the Conservatives did support them in the end, but if Aaron O'Toole and those dastardly Conservatives come to the fore, uh, it's just going to be economic chaos. He's going to cut everything. This isn't the time to cut everything. He's about austerity. I'm about you. So I think that's where the lines of attack are going to be. I think O'Toole has to be careful to find, again, that right balance between saying, yes, we have to be fiscally responsible and we have to look forward but he can't have that Tim Hudak moment, and by that you will know what I mean. Talking about <laughs> as it happened in Hudak's campaign, you know, suggested that a hundred thousand government employees were going to get laid off, and that killed Tim, who's a buddy of mine, in that campaign. When that train came up, he was done, done like dinner. And O'Toole has to watch for that. Uh, what about the liberal logo build or uh, uh, brand or uh, positioning statement that says "Build Back Better," which is obviously the exact same line that Joe Biden's using in the United States uh, in his uh, Democratic race for president? Um, and even Aaron O'Toole in the in the, his speech yesterday used the line "Build Back Better." Uh, sort of against uh, the liberals. What's what's the? Is it worth taking someone else's line, someone else's movement, and running with that? And the fact that O'Toole is also mentioning it. What's your take on all of this? Is is that yeah, line I, working? Um, I don't know. I, I think they. I, I haven't seen the research, but clearly the conservatives have some research that suggests there's some vulnerability there. Uh, as that speech of O'Toole's yesterday addressed. He was trying to link the building back better to liberal cronies benefiting from the build back, right? Um, I think he referenced uh, a specific project in there that uh, he alleged uh, somebody very, was very close to us, the Liberal Party, had received a fairly significant contract during all of this. And again, he was trying to link it, I think, to the, the, the old, uh, you know, the, uh, the current version of the sponsorship scandal, which worked for the Conservatives before when Liberals spelt money after a crisis, that time being the national unity crisis that, you know, Liberal ad agencies did very well. And that, of course, became the the brand of entitlement that sank the Liberal Party for a decade. So that's where O'Toole is going. And I think he thinks Build Back Better is uh, this government's version of the sponsorship scandal.
How does uh, any conservative sell austerity during a time like this? <laughs> don't. Uh, yeah. Look, I think you don't sell austerity. I think you, you talk about the need to be responsible and and to be accountable. I, uh, I, I don't think Aaron O'Toole, an Aaron O'Toole government right now would do many things significantly different from Justin Trudeau. And, and, and if, if he were thinking that way, he wouldn't have supported the emergency, the legislation, um, which got unanimous, uh, unanimous approval the other night for what was effectively the continuation of SIR. But I think you would hear more about uh, 10-year plans and a return to uh, a return to balanced budgets. And because there, there is a large part of the country that is saying, okay, we get we got to spend the money now, but show us the path back. So I think what a conservative government or, or a campaign for O'Toole would demonstrate is that. What's the path back? And I don't think you'd see any significant markers of, uh, you, you wouldn't see much foreshadowing of cuts and, and the like of, you know, big programs in that, but it, it would talk in general terms and, and provide numbers on what, what balance in the future looks like. All right, I can't let you go without asking you, uh, as a political guru, what your thoughts were of the guru. U.S. presidential Scott, debate. are you drinking at that table in your house? <laughs> what? Guru, my God. Uh, well, I'll give you the drink reference, so I don't know if you know this or not. I can't remember if I've shared it with you, but in my youth, I used to be a bouncer on St. John's very popular George Street. So, ah. you know, I, I've had my share of interesting debates with people at 3.30 in the morning when they think it's unjustified they're being evacuated from a bar. And let me just say, those debates with those unruly patrons were a lot more sensible and productive than anything that happened on Tuesday night between those two guys. I take a George Street debate anytime. And the last point I'd make, because I know you're going to break, is that I don't think Biden did himself a whole lot of favors by going into the gutter with Trump. I know yeah. what he's trying to do, but... You know, when you're a presidential candidate and you're telling the other guy to shut up and calling him an idiot, even though most of us want to say that, I don't know that it serves you well when it's so against your brand. I thought the same thing myself. It was very uncomfortable. You know, it was funny. Many thought it would be entertaining. I think it was more uncomfortable than entertaining. Yeah, because Biden, again, for good or for bad, he doesn't he, he's presented himself as a uh, yeah, he's made lots of mistakes and all of that, but he's always come across as a polite fellow. So being rude like Trump didn't serve him well. So if you are, what happens the next time? You know, if you're a person who is involved in a debate and the your opponent won't give you your two minutes, what do you do? Well, there is that other George Street solution. You go over and drop them. But I, I don't see 77 year old I think Joe that Biden. was the next thing that was going to happen. If there was a <laughs> dinner table there, we would have seen turkey flying around. Yeah, I, I don't know what their strategy is going to be next time, other than maybe just let Trump play himself out and make him look ridiculous, because it's hard. We, we've all been in discussions like that, not to the same intensity, but when somebody is yapping at you and back talking, and sometimes the only way you can deal with it is just to shut up, which doesn't help if you're on transmit yourself with a message, but it sends a message to the audience that, you know, this person is, is not necessarily right, but he's being, he or she's being ridiculous. Maybe that's what Biden has to do to have strategic pauses and let Trump prattle on like a raging lunatic. And maybe that moves some of the undecided that uh, are still uncertain of where they're going to go in the U.S. They're talking about changing the rules to the debate. Maybe we should start with having both candidates being screeched in. 
<laughs> well, I know just the bar. I know just the bar, and I'm happy to take another turn of duty for one more night, Scott. So should they change anything here? Can you change it? Does it why would you change the rules if nobody's abiding by the rules anyway? Well, someone has made the point, point. I think it's a good one. The next one is a town hall, and that's a different format, right? Because you don't want to be seen to be a, a jackass to somebody in the audience who asks you a question. And so maybe that provides a bit of a moderating factor. There's this all this talk about turning off microphones. The problem with the microphones, as you, you know, you're in the business, you're still going to pick up whatever the uh, the the, the the baying is from the other person and it'll mm-hmm. sound even more odd i think so uh maybe it, it's having more interactive formats with people other than a moderator that'll make some form of group policing possible tim powers has been with us vice chairman summa strategies managing director abacus data tim as always thank you so much for the time much appreciated stay well thanks my friend bye The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcasts and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.